Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure to talk to Thomas Ogorzalek, who is the author of The Cities on the Hill, How Urban Institutions Transformed National Politics. The book is published this year by Oxford University Press, and Thomas is here with me today. Thomas, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Heath. Uh, thanks for the invitation. I'm a great fan of the pod, and uh, I really like the work you're doing, and I'm excited to talk to you with, uh, with you about the book. <laughs> Yeah, I'm uh, so excited to talk to you. Uh, We'll get to all the details of the book, but any book that features New York City, uh, I just like from the start. Uh, The book is is partially about New York City. It's about cities and and urban politics, Um, but it has uh, some really interesting ways in which you come about this. Before we get to the book, uh, why don't you just share a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, So I grew up in the the suburbs of Chicago, um, a town called Schaumburg, which is kind of like uh, the ultimate kind of suburb with a big mall and some highways that come together. And I've lived in a bunch of different kinds of places since then that kind of informs my research. I lived in uh, a small town in Mississippi as an AmeriCorps teacher for a year after college. And uh, I was in Pascagoula, Mississippi. And then I've lived in big cities ever since then in uh, Washington, D.C. for a couple of years, studying and researching housing policy for um, a national advocacy organization. And I moved to New York for grads, uh, graduate school, where I went to the new school in Columbia University and got um, a Ph.D. in political science there um, at Columbia. And then I've been teaching and researching at Northwestern University, which is in Evanston, just north of Chicago. And I live in Chicago for the last five years. And uh, so kind of living in different kinds of cities and this being in these kinds of places affects my my worldview and also just kind of helps me understand politics a little bit better. I like to do the nuts and bolts of things. So I I try to pour all of this into the book. Um, I hope that kind of comes through. Yeah, you poured a lot into the book. There's a lot of stuff here. We're going to talk about just a small portion of it. Uh, but but let's get to what seems like one of the central arguments of the book, which is that, that cities and non-cities are just different, um, especially in what they want and what they need. Uh, you argue that cities are particularly likely to want and need public goods and to be more supportive of redistribution. Uh, starting sort of in this theoretical area, I wonder if you'd walk us through your your argument about the uniqueness of city preferences. Sure. Yeah. So um, one of the ways of political scientists think about politics and they're trying to assess why people think the things they do about politics. So we tend to like look at nationally representative samples or um speeches that people make and often we consider them in a sort of an aspatial way and i I like to think about space and the the sort of the lived context in which people um, spend their lives uh, is potentially important for shaping some of those political ideologies so the thing that we we call economic liberalism or something like that seems like a, a set of policies that 
helps manage city life a little bit um, a little bit more effectively. And it seems like it's more important in cities than in other kinds of places to do the kinds of economic interventions that are pretty common in American politics. So as you mentioned, like public goods makes a lot more sense to build something like a, an airport or a big bridge or something like that when there's in an area where there's a lot of people around to use it. You know, we had the famous bridge to nowhere a few years ago out in Alaska and was going to be like a giant bridge the size of the Brooklyn Bridge for like 15 people or something like that. That doesn't make that much sense. But the Brooklyn Bridge makes a lot of sense in Brooklyn when it was built between America's two largest cities at the time. And like hundreds of thousands of people can use it every day. So thinking about like the different actual contexts in which some of these interventions get made seems to be an important thing. So I try to work through those relationships in terms of ideology or in terms of specific policies um, in terms of like the urban or rural character of the places in which they might be uh, portrayed. So it's, it's, I think there's, it's not the case that one size fits all policies make a lot of sense in every co- different kinds of place. So working through those kinds of questions seems like an important thing to think about when we're considering American politics and polarization. Now, this, this agreement that you described does not mean that cities are single-minded in their political views. And, and in actuality, you show that cities are quite diverse. So how, if this is right, uh, how could it be that a, a given city like New York, uh, there can be widely varying ideologies, but, but this consensus on something as important as the pr- provision of goods? So what's that? Is this a paradox? Is this a, the right characterization of, of your take or, or is it something else? Yeah, definitely. So that's one of the the things that draws me to study cities in the first place. I, you know, like when you're reading a lot about cities and in the, the the field of urban politics, the the thing that comes through isn't that cities it's easy to govern cities or that everybody gets along and agrees on anything. It's that basically nobody agrees on everything. There's a famous book about San Francisco in which um, Richard De Leon talks about the idea of hyperpluralism as a way to describe cities. And it's just like there's so many interests and there's so many different kinds of people from so many different kinds of places with so many different interests. So it's hard to figure out uh, what's sort of the right way or what's the city's interest. And so, but uh, ultimately we do need to come to some sort of governance arrangements because cities are also kind of generate lots of governance demands. You know, there's lots of garbage. We've got to clean up the garbage. We've got to fix the potholes. We've got to resolve social conflicts. We've got to do all kinds of things. And we, so we can't get too bogged down in this hyperpluralism and this, this diversity of interests. So it, um, where I try to focus is less about sort of individuals' preferences, which is one of the places that a lot of political scientists kind of stop or focus on, look at how indi- different individuals think about politics, and to try to characterize the governance demands of these places, and then how the governance demands will shape sort of elites decision making or the negotiation between elites who are ultimately going to be governing the city or coming together to like form coalitions or figure out how to do sort of power broker arrangements in order to make things work a little bit better. So yeah, it's, I think it's a paradox. There's so much heterogeneity of interests within cities, but uh, we, we do need to sort of get on with the business of governance. So it's uh, it's a tough thing to figure out. And it's one of the, one of the things that I think for me makes cities interesting to study and then also kind of provides puzzles about uh, how cities are going to represent themselves in, in other venues when they have to kind of be a little bit more unified if they want to get anything. Now, through. you argue that institutions in particular help to coordinate this complicated political landscape. Which institutions to you matter matter most to your argument? And, and what have they done historically yeah. to keep advocacy for cities in, in Washington coordinated in some way? Sure. So uh, when we think about, it's a really good question, when we think about the um, 
the nature of how cities might represent themselves or prevent, present something like a, a city uh, policy agenda, urban policy agenda in national politics, we want to think about the, the, some of the, the institutions um, that, that provide political order in the face of that sort of social heterogeneity. So how do you overcome that, that social heterogeneity? And there's two sort of classes of institutions that I focus on in the book. Um, they're both uh, I refer to them as institutions of horizontal integration, where they kind of integrate the histor- the, uh, the horizontal geographical space of the city into one sort of more unified political block that we'll call this the city delegation. And uh, the the two two different types of institutions of horizontal integration are the jurisdictional. So one's just the city boundary itself. So the idea that all of the different parts of New York City are kind of lumped together in one thing called New York City matters for politics. If Brooklyn was still its own city, it wouldn't probably wouldn't get along quite as well. Or it would be harder to build coalitions with Manhattan or with New York or with Queens or with Staten Island. But because they're all in New York City, it seems to make uh, coalitions work a little bit better. So that's the city boundary. And another one is the local political parties. So local political parties are often um, seen as some referred to as machines or something like that, or the, the, uh, Cook, or the King, King, uh, Kings County Democratic Party or the Cook County Democratic Party. These are also different kinds of organizations, so organizational institutions of horizontal integration. They kind of bring together some of these elites and allow them to make deals across space. So one of the ways uh, I kind of think about it in Chicago, where I live, it's a very segregated city. You know, the north side has historically been almost 100% white. And the uh, south side has been majority black for a really long time. They've all been part of both the city of Chicago and the Chicago Democratic Party for a really long time. And they're they're able to work out some deals to sort of overcome a little bit of that heterogeneity. It's not really perfect. And there's, we, uh, I talk about a lot about that in the book too. We have like recurrent conflicts, but I think those conflicts are, we're able to overcome some of those conflicts a little bit better when we've got these sort of stable patterns of governance, these institutions that um, kind of help people get in the same room and help try to solve problems collaboratively. Now, when Dan Hopkins came on the podcast last month, he talked about Tip O'Neill's adage about local politics. And it seems that your book is challenging, uh, is in many challenging uh, this simple understanding that, that all politics are local. Um, your bo- book is novel in that you are interested in city politics, but not in City Hall exactly. Uh, you shift uh, to the national venues uh, for much of your analysis. So in doing this, uh, what are you able to examine about city politics and what are the types of data that you use and and what is the time period that you study? So I really like Dan's book. It's funny you mentioned that. I'm also kind of working on uh, another article, kind of an exchange with him on the uh, the other channel right now. But um, so I think that our, our books have a fair amount in common and a little bit in tension in terms of thinking about how place might matter for politics. But in my story, I'm uh, kind of I I use data from most of the 20th century, and but I focus in especially on an era between uh, between the uh, basically the 1930s and the 1960s, what we call the Long New Deal, which is kind of an era of Democratic Party dominance. When you have this kind of coalition between Southern Democrats who had been uh, in the Democratic Party for a long time and a growing urban bloc that's uh, in cities across the country, but especially in the industrial North. And so I look at um, how that coalition came together and shaped a national politics. And so one of the key things I'm looking at is how not not just like how city politics work out on the ground within the, the streets of the city, but how they sort of transmit to supra local politics, politics beyond the city limits. 
because I think uh, it's really important to understand how cities fit into the federal system of American governance, which kind of constrains cities. You know, cities need to do a lot of things, but they've got a lot of like limits on the, the things they're able to do effectively at home. So going beyond that to going from the streets to the hills, the city on the hill, that's the, uh, the intentional title of the book for that. Um, thinking about how cities represent themselves in national politics is kind of an innovative step, but I think it's the strategic move for cities to make if they're limited in what they can accomplish at home. They want to shape the broader context in which they're doing things. So the, uh, the, the key part of the book is in the 1930s when there's a a shift in American politics. And we start to see cities getting together in one big coalition and they're starting to develop advocacy groups like the U S conference of mayors to try and advance city policy and city agenda in, in national politics. And they're also achieving some policy goals through the new deal and things like that and actually deliver a lot of goods to um, cities and allow cities to govern themselves a little bit more effectively through this alliance rather than try to, to each kind of do it on their own or as rivals with each other. They become allies instead. And, and what do you find when you examine congressional roll call votes? Uh, do members from a given city tend to vote together, uh, controlling for all those other reasons they might vote together, you know, otherwise, such as partisanship. So um, do you find that the, uh, uh, the voting of, of House members from cities tend to um, travel together during this time period? Yeah. So one of the, the central and kind of most surprising things I came across uh, as I was reading the book is there's, there's an idea that um, among representatives at this time, that representatives from cities represent um, not just their separate districts, but they represent the city as a whole and kind of form what I call a city delegation in the book. And so, um, yeah, I, I try to I tried to dig in a little bit more closely and understand how these city delegations might work. You know, when we think about how representation typically works in American politics. You've got the district and they vote for the representative and then the representative responds to things in the district. But city districts are totally different from each other. The north side of Chicago is kind of uh, all white or uh, different collections of white working class or affluent white districts. South side, mostly black um, and uh, mostly working class. And we have like many, very, a lot of heterogeneity within these cities, but the city delegations themselves, it turns out, tend to vote more cohesively than we would expect. So um, I can use some statistical techniques to try to tease out the effects of um, these institutions of horizontal integration in congressional voting. And I'm able to find that there's a substantial, substantively large effect that city boundaries seem to have and that the strength of local institutions have, because different cities have different um, strengths of local institutions. The Chicago machine was known to be very strong and centralized, or Mayor Daley, and his predecessor had a lot of control over the uh, the actions of other people in the Chicago Democratic Party, whereas other places like New York or L.A., the institutions, uh, the party institutions are a little bit weaker and more fragmented. So we can see, tease out the strength of the institution, how that's associated with the cohesion of the city delegation in voting and behavior. And also we can see that even though cities are, districts are very different from each other, um, they are, uh, they're pretty cohesive. They're very cohesive, in fact in the way they represent themselves. They're representing a city interest, not just their district interests. You know, and much of the book is focused on New York and, and Chicago and, and a couple of other cities. Um, I wonder if you could talk about the, the focus here and, and how far these results generalize to cities that, you know, may not be as large or as unusual in the ways that Chicago and New York are. Uh, are your findings uh, about sort of cities on the hill 
uh, specific to these big, big cities, or is it is it a broader phenomenon? Mm-hmm. It's a really good question. Yeah. So when people ask about which cities I study, I say all of them. But really, I, I have a particular affection for New York and Chicago. Um, and then I also, um, they're also sort of two of the most studied cities in American American urban politics research. So there, there's a lot of other people who have had takes on them so that it's uh, easy to enter into that literature and try to understand what's going on. But um, in, I'm also uh, theoretically interested in those places in part because um, New York uh, is kind of the most urban place. In addition to being the biggest city, it's also the densest, the most heterogeneous. So it's like a, uh, a model for the other cities. And it was by far kind of the leader of this um, uh, urban political order, this coalition of cities that came together during this time. Fiorella LaGuardia was one of the uh, the persons who was pretty important in doing this, but this, the city itself was pretty important. And, you know, there's a lot of representatives from New York during this time. Um, and Chicago as well is, I think, pretty uh, interesting and distinctive because of the strength of that local institution. We're kind of able to see how those institutions, the organizational institution of horizontal integration happens sort of in practice. And um, so we, we can kind of extrapolate. It's hard to tell how generalizable some of these things are, and especially uh, p- partly because of the, the, the way that the historical record is set up. You know, I have to go and look in the archives and try and find co- uh, correspondence between representatives and mayors to try to see whether or not they, uh, they're talking to each other as, and trying to influence national representation. But then also uh, we're a little bit limited by the data to, in order to just analyze congressional delegations from cities because most cities don't have more than one representative in Congress. We have to have like a large enough delegation in order to be able to understand whether or not it's cohesive. And so New York and Chicago and Philadelphia and Los Angeles and maybe a couple of other cities over time are large enough to do that. It's also easier to do it early in time because the cities made up a bigger share. So the city delegations were bigger. Uh, New York and Chicago city delegations are about half as big as they were during the new the the New Deal era. So I'm examining it during that time. Um, so there's some limitations. Sort of some of these analyses are driven by the data, and some of them are driven by theoretical ideas about sort of who's coming up with the ideas about how to manage a city. And I think it's the the, the most the cityest places, uh, New York and Chicago, that are doing this during the time. Yeah, the the other book that um, uh, I've read and, and uh, the author came on the podcast was Clayton Nall's book about uh, the development of of the um, interstate highway system and the advantages that brought to suburban and and rural areas, um, and and the way in which that sort of happened uh, uh, ever since the nineteen forties or so. Um, I wonder mm-hmm. um, if you talk a little bit about the the phenomena that you f- uh, discover for cities in comparison to the politics of, of um, suburban and rural areas? What, what you've described sounds like it works to the benefit of representing uh, uh, people living in cities, um, but, but that also works into uh, a political system where, where those in suburban and rural communities are seeking representation. So uh, uh, fit this together for us. How, do, how does this fit into a, a larger national picture of politics where not just cities are seeking representation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I really, I admire uh, Clayton Clayton's book. I think it's a really good uh, volume um, about the the nature, the way that policy shapes politics and then back and forth. The um, the nature of the urban-suburban divide I, it is a piece of the book. Um, and the, um, the the thing I wanted to, to get into when I was studying, taking this approach to studying city politics is really about exactly what you're asking. So thinking about how cities 
it's not just how cities do politics locally, but how they go and contend with other interests and other uh, political forces within in the, the broader nation. And so partly uh, one of the analytical kind of tricks, not a trick, but analytical leverage I'm able to gain is I kind of look most closely at the era before the, uh, the highway program allowed this kind of dispersion of people. And some of that dispersion was probably based on people's political preferences or just general disposition towards uh, the kind of place they wanted to live in and something like that, which we think is, is, is associated with their political and partisan views today. So uh, before the people who took those highways out to the suburbs and created an urban-suburban polarization in these metro areas in, uh, in Clayton All's great book, um, those people lived in the cities and uh, they were, you know, they, they didn't have quite as much residential choice before it was easy to get around on these highways. So thinking about um, kind of how the cities represented or didn't represent some of those those individuals, perhaps more conservative um, perspectives. This is like one of the paradoxes that's in the book too, especially on questions of race and uh, residential integration. The other thing I try to think about, and I don't deal with it that much in the book because I'm focused mostly on that long New Deal era that I was talking about, is yeah, what's going on with the suburbs? It's basically 70% of Americans live there today. If we want to understand kind of place character, we're going to need to come up with a good theory of the suburbs. And I think it's really hard because um, so the suburbs are growing and they're growing quickly, but they're also the kind of in-between space. They're in-between in terms of their partisanship now. Uh, rural areas are, tend to be more Republican and suburban areas in between, and then uh, cities tend to be more Democratic. And then they're also kind of in-between and so heterogeneous and varied in terms of their actual kind of place character. So the suburbs of New York, if you go up to like Yonkers, we might call Newark a suburb of New York now. There's there's places that are like really kind of urban in the, their, their character, but they're not cities in terms of being really big places that combine a lot of different kinds of of um, individuals into a common political community that's kind of big on the national scale. And then you go out west and the suburbs are, you know, huge and sprawling and completely car-based. Um, and then every, there's all kinds of other kinds of suburbs in between. The suburbs are getting more and more complex. And if we want to understand place, we're going to have to, like, look more closely at them and, and think about that. One thing I would say is that suburban politics is kind of premised on the idea of political fragmentation. It's kind of the opposite of these institutions of horizontal integration. You look at the map of Chicagoland, we've got Chicago right in the middle, and then you've got this map of the suburbs where it's just um, little towns that are basically the size of Chicago neighborhoods, but each one has its own sort of political community that it's in, and it arranges its own um, politics. And so it's premised around the idea of sort of walls between places rather than bridges across um, different communities. So I think that's an important thing to think about in terms of the way that place might filter up into national politics it would be built less on um, sort of figuring out how to overcome some of these um, social fragment, social and political fragmentations for governance. And maybe um, it, it might make it a little bit more challenging. Yeah. The, the book uh, that you've been uh, hearing about the cities on the Hill, how urban institutions transformed national politics is published this year by Oxford university press You've been hearing from Thomas Orgazolak. Uh, Thomas, thank you very much for your time, and thank you very much for the book. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Heath. It's great to talk to you. 